Okay, so uh, welcome everybody. Thank you for coming. Uh, this is the LSE Literary Festival LSE Review of Books event, Don't Judge a Book by Its Cover, Reflecting Content Through Design. Uh, my name is Amy Mollett and I'm the managing editor of the LSE Review of Books. If you haven't heard of us before, we're an open access, online only, academic book review site. We've published over a thousand book reviews. Uh, we have reviews from academics, PhD students and other students from across the world. We cover all social science areas, anthropology, right through to economics and everything in between. We also do podcasts, lots of other exciting features, so please feel free to have a look at us. We are lsereviewofbooks.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at lsereviewbooks. And if you'd like to tweet along with us today, the hashtag is lselitfest. Uh, so this fantastic event is uh, about to kick off. I'll hand over to uh, Toby in a second to introduce, introduce our speakers for today. Uh, yes, please feel free to tweet along. We are LSC, uh, it's LSC Litfest. Um, if you're interested in uh, contributing to the LSC Review of Books, please come and talk to me afterwards um, or just have a look at us. We are lscreviewofbooks.com. I'll hand over to Toby. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yes, yeah, welcome once again to um, Sophie's event where we're going to talk about um, book covers. Um, my name is Toby Lishig, I'm an editor at the Times Literary Supplement, um, where we spend a great deal of time looking at book covers, um, and sometimes the pages in between. Um, I think we can all agree this is a really interesting subject, which has a lot to say about current trends and sometimes the, the arguments um, in the publishing industry and the world of reading and literature as a whole. So I'm grateful to be joined by such a distinguished panel, um, who will all be able to bring a variety of different perspectives, um, I think, to the uh, often vexed question of how we package and present um, literary works. Um, so I'm going to introduce everyone in a second, but I thought I'd just start off by reading the little um, paragraph that sets the parameters of the debate. Um, uh, and I'll then ask each of our guests to speak for about ten minutes um, before um, opening up the question to the audience. Um, so so the, the, the blurb... Um, Fiction publishing has long held that an eye-catching cover is key to successful sales, but academic publishing struggles to reflect its complex content through a single standout image on the cover. The growth of e-books and online publishing in many ways makes the cover design of a book more important, and the ease of sharing a cover on social media arguably gives it more prominence than it's ever had. So, this panel asks, how crucial today is book cover design, and what can serious fiction and non-fiction publishing learn from its more populist cousins. Um, so first off, I'd like to introduce Polly Courtney. Um, Polly's the author of six, um, six widely praised novels, um, most recently Feral Youth, um, which looks at life among the young and disenfranchised during the summer riots of 2011. And Polly started life as an in investment banker, is that right? It's not a typo. Um, <laughs> and I, I did some digging. Um, at, at one point working as the only woman in a team of 21, um, and her first novel, Golden Handcuffs, um, looked at the often unpleasant and frequently sexist reality of life on the square mile. Um, Polly's subsequent novels have taken a sharp look at immigration, racism, fame culture, and the world of lads magazines. Um, and she's also well known for her own run-in with an apparently sexist publishing industry, having walked out on her publisher, Harper Collins, after it insisted on assigning girly and, um, they're quite fluffy, yeah. uh, <laughs> fluffy cover designs to her um, decidedly non-fluffy books. Um, Polly has since returned to self-publishing, um, a term I, I think you've also described as a misnomer. Um, so perhaps um, we'll be able to talk a little bit about um, where self-publishing stands um, in the world of professional book design. Um, 
Next up, I'm pleased to introduce uh, Isabel Ducat, um, an art editor for the press division of Penguin Books, um, a publishing house with a fearsomely stellar reputation uh, for cover design. Isabel has over 12 years' experience in the book industry, and in her current role, she designs, commissions, and sources cover artwork for a range of titles across Penguin's fiction and non-fiction imprints, um, including, I think I'm right in saying this, I, I looked it up, the, the Legends from the Ancient North series, yes. um, which was recently produced, which got some absolutely beautiful um, designs for well-known sagas, including Beowulf and, and Gawain and the Green Knight, and um, which don't... Uh, look in the least bit fluffy um, and then finally I'd like to introduce um, uh, Jonathan Gibbs, uh, author, critic blogger, uh, cultural commentator creative writing teacher and um, most importantly TLS reviewer um, Jonathan writes for a very long list of publications and has an excellent literary blog called Tiny Camels he also blogs weekly for the independent on the subject of book design with a particular emphasis on covers um, Jonathan's own first novel Randall is due out is it, Rand- is, is it Randall or, or it's just Randall? Just Randall. Just Randall. Um, it's due out in June. Um, it's described as a satirical alternative history of the heady years of Cool Britannia and the emergence of the young British artists. It's published by Gallybegger Press, um, a publisher that's put a lot of thought into its own very distinctive cover brand. Um, and having actually heard Jonathan read a hilarious extract um, of it at a recent literary event, I can only urge everyone to go out and buy it this summer. Um, right, so that's, um, that's enough for me. Um, and I think... Isabel's going to kick things off. I've uh, left my script in the other room, so I'm going to run out and come back. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sorry to miss the beginning of it. But I am coming back. I can wait for you. <laughs> Talk very slowly. That's what I So, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to read this uh, little talk. I'm prepared to um, show you what it is that uh, I do uh, as an art editor um, at Penguin. So, Never judge a book by its cover. Really? (laughs) (laughs) I have been surrounded by books and loved them as far back as I can remember. I love being read to from them. I love looking at them. I love their illustrations, their stories. I love what they could say about me when displayed. I love their feel. I love their smell. I love their look. And if I found them ugly or too compromising, I could always revamp them. Weirdly, or not, cellotaping images on ugly books I liked is something I had done long before I started properly thinking about book design or even considering it as a profession. True, on the continent, book design can be rather elegantly discreet. (laughs) This is what literature, serious literature with a capital L, looks like there. Its designs pay great attention to the physicality of the book. High quality paper, lovely formats, pleasant typesetting with an understated cover. A template used by those publishing houses for decades. This consistency of look, coupled with the constant high standard of the actual text, means that, on the continent at least, people don't even see there's a design there, so much it has come to signify quality read. This is definitely something that I noticed in my first job in a bookshop, 
which was the perfect ground to observe firsthand what makes a reader pick up a book. <clears throat> when I moved to the UK 12 years ago, the landscape of a bookshop looked very different to me. In contrast with what I knew in Belgium, the UK design seemed to shout louder, to be more image-focused or concept-driven. There seemed to me that there was less emphasis on the brand and more on the individual title. This was the landscape in which I started working on book cover design. So, book design. The process always starts with a brief. A book to read and a brief. That's the brief. The goal of the process is to try and articulate an aspect of the book in a visual form, hoping it will echo with the potential reader. There are many possible answers, many ways of doing this, and the solutions arrived at have to fit with the strategy of the publisher or the author. The division of Penguin I am working with publishes classical literature and non-fiction books. My work consists in making the serious writing look engaging. I'd like to show you a few of these books, briefs and solutions, illustrating ways this can be achieved. Let's start with classics, aptly named imprint for classical literature. The reference, complete with introduction and notes. The template does not change throughout the series, and for each title, the role of the cover is to provide a visual frame of reference to the work published, the nationality, the period, the genre, and the subject of the artwork echoing that of the book. By contrast, this approach is, um, tries and gives access to the work with a contemporary commission, perhaps more atmospheric, symbolic or playful, and freeing the book from its historical context. A similar imprint for 20th century literature. Here are three different approaches suggested for the same series of books in search of lost, of lost time. At the top, uh, we have artworks contemporary to the writing, giving the mood of the period, as well as hints of the themes in the novels. In the middle, we're trying to place the novels in a more current aesthetic, giving a contemporary relevance to the story. At the bottom, we have historical photos again of some of the people that actually have inspired the characters in the novel, but with dramatic crops, giving a sense of the meticulous observation of the author and leaving space for the imagination to complete the picture. In general, we hope that the approach that is, con is concept-driven gets chosen. In this case, the bottom one was chosen. For this book, On the Brain and Violence, here are three literal approaches showing the actual thing, anatomy and violence, either as symbols or with explicit images. 
Here is a more conceptual approach to the same title, working like a puzzle, hinting at some answers, echoing a film strip, the fragments of a bigger narrative. This was the chosen approach. This is an example of trying to give an arduous subject a more approachable look, echoing the charismatic personality of its author and his very personal writing style rather than just the subject, physics. (laughs) (laughs) This is the final cover. For each book, I tend to suggest multiple options to the cover panel, which consists of our managing director, the director of marketing, and the editor of the book. On occasions, though, I strike gold with a single visual. That this author, Stephen Pinker, liked his cover was particularly important because he really wanted his books to look more literary and serious. The design approach illustrated here did not have the gravitas the author was hoping for, although it has sold many, many copies. So now we have a direction, a style to work towards. This is the literary rebranding work in progress of Stephen Pinker. He hasn't seen that yet. (laughs) (laughs) But perhaps it might look like this, a play between the title and the image. Or perhaps I can push things even further, limiting the palette to black, white and red. Or perhaps it will be none of the above options if the author hates them all. To be continued. (laughs) Here's another example of how to update and reinvent how an author's works look. And I sometimes wonder, is change always necessary? I mean... Which line would you pick? And do you really care? The bottom. The top. Let's play more. (laughs) Um, This is the work of my um, colleague, the designer Matthew Young. And um, have a look. Can you pick the winner amongst those submitted covers? So, pick your favourite. But this was the winner. (laughs) There. I personally would have picked a different one, but as designer, you really get the choice. What is very interesting with classical literature is that one title can exist in different versions at the same time. This is probably the best way to measure the effect of design on sales. So this time... Can you pick the big seller? To sell Virginia Woolf's Orlando, I give you Tilda Swinton versus a stock photo versus the work of the very respected design company, Pentagram. Any guess? Pentagram, wasn't it? No. Nudity and design, (laughs) a winning combo. But is it as simple as that? Here, Les Miserables, The first three books on the left um, were on sale at the same time as the release of the Hollywood adaptation of um, the musical, and the one on the right um, came out a year later. 
Um, Sales-wise, no surprise, the bestseller is the one with the movie image. However, um, the red and grey cloth-bound edition um, on the left, um, a more expensive and collectible as an object, has made just as much money. And the sales of the academic version also increased dramatically in the wake of the film um, coming out despite its traditional um, look and the image having nothing to do with um, Hollywood. But it seems that you can't push things too far uh, as for the latest cover, trying a new title to signal the fresh translation of this classic novel, and that book has not performed as well as the others. So what does success look like? The most annoying briefs that I get are the one asking to make a book look like a bestseller. But what does this mean? <laughs> what is a commercial design? Is it these? I mean, this book was a phenomenal success. But was it because or despite of its design? This was a phenomenal success as well, but this time coupled with clever design. And this again is success, but I think this time entirely due to good design. And this is the work of the amazing designer David Pearson, you might have heard of him. So not that the book here are bad, but design made them desirable and gave them a new life. So success can look very good. It does, not, it does not have to involve cliches. A design can help revive things without borrowing visual help from Hollywood. Here is a project where design has to work really hard to make difficult books desirable and contemporary. <coughs> In doing that, you can create discussion on the book as a collectible object. A visual language re-energizes a historical narrative. And a final thought. This is the project that is currently on my desk. It poses the question of a cover without a title, exploring the possibility of it being replaced by a branding, an iconography, a symbol. Will it work to be continued? <laughs> um, wow, how do I follow that? Um, <laughs> first, I just want to say um, I'm really pleased and uh, excited by two things in that. Um, I mean, from an author's perspective, the most important thing is that your book or books are, um, well, that they sell to the right people, to the right people, so it's not just about numbers, um, and uh, that you are happy and comfortable with the design. And you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned many examples, but Stephen Pink really, really struck a nerve with me in that... Um, you cared, and you as a, as a collective, the publishing house, cared what, um, what he thought and whether he was happy with it. And that's not always the case. 
Um, so I have an interesting relationship with um, book covers, um, stemming from an interesting journey through the publishing uh, world, as Toby alluded to. Um, I actually started um, my publishing career by self-publishing my first book, which was based on my life in the city. Um, and, and that was a, a result of basically publishers at the time saying, well, we like your style, but why on earth would anyone want to write, learn, hear about what goes on in the financial world? Um, <laughs> before, before the financial crash. And, uh, so self-published that, and the success of that book ultimately got me um, into conversation via my agent um, with a publishing house. Um, and it was an imprint of HarperCollins, so one of the big publishing houses... Um, but I think a very different type of publishing house, and particularly this imprint. So um, my experience was um, that we established what I was going to write about, and I went and wrote it in a ridiculously short amount of time, so we won't go into all the details of uh, how it is to be in a, a contract with a publishing house. But um, uh, And all the way through the process of sort of writing and, and uh, publishing pre-publication of my first book with HarperCollins, I was saying, well, surely we need to be thinking about cover design because, you know, it's quite important. And also title, because we were working with a working title. Uh, and they, you know, every time I, I mentioned this, they were sort of, they're there, don't worry, we've got, our, our team is on it. Uh, and then about a month before publication, um, I got an email basically saying, this is your uh, book cover. Um, and actually, I think we have got um, a thing, but... Um, it's not massively important, but um, the <laughs> it's only a two-slider, so it's just the second slide. Um, and and so I was told uh, if you if you just sorry, <laughs> really lazy, yeah, just click on, and that is basically the full slide. Yeah, that's it. Perfect. No, back. <laughs> that's it. That's it. So um, so those are my my self-published ones on the left, which I will talk about um, because I wrote more after the first one. Uh, but this is what um, the publishers came up with uh, for my first book with them. The style inside was very much the same as what I'd written about my uh, as, as how I'd written my first book. Um, and I, my instant reaction was, that's not right for what I'm writing about. It, it came out around the time, I don't know if anyone remembers, that, that Richard and Judy was the kind of uh, way of discovering books. That was the big, the be-all and end-all, really. Uh, and I think they were kind of trying to get a book that suited Richard and Judy, if you know what I mean. Um, not necessarily giving it a cover that reflected what was inside. And that was my gut reaction. I thought, wow, I'm really, I really don't think this is going to work, because the wrong people will pick it up. The people who think it's going to be one of those type of books will pick it up and then they'll be disappointed. And the people who would have probably liked it because I certainly, you know, I know roughly who my readers are from having sold tens of thousands of books with the first one. Um, I don't think they would pick that one up. So I, um, I didn't trust my judgment because I thought, well, that's, it's a subjective thing, isn't it? I mean, that's why you, you work with a team and someone does make the final call. But, of course, it's subjective and everyone has different ideas. So um, I did some, I suppose, what you call market research. I uh, got some trusted readers, just sort of random readers from my readership that I'd built up with my first book. Um, and said, just without any kind of um, sway, said, would, what do you think of this book cover? Would you pick it up? And uh, once you turned it over and read the blurb, because that was also sort of um, in, in discussion, uh, would you read it? You know, would you buy it? And the, the opinions that came back were all pretty much aligned in that they kind of thought, well, is it, is it a bit like Lovely Bones? You know, or is it a, a ghost story? Um, and, and, and they were, I mean, they, for various reasons, they were really confused about what it, what it was representing. And they certainly, none of them assumed, oh, yes, it's probably like your first one, uh, as you can see. 
so I, I fed this back to my publishing team, my editorial team, and uh, they said, oh, thanks very much for, you know, doing all that, but we think it's a really compelling cover with standout qualities and it's going to fly off the shelves, so uh, we're going with it. Uh, and I thought, well, this is my first experience with a big traditional publishing house, so they probably, probably got it right, they are the experts, and I just muddled my way through. And I should say that with my first, um, with my first book, the cover didn't actually look like that. It was a terrible cover. It was a really bad... I, I almost put it on, but I'm too embarrassed. So if you really, if you really want to look it up, just look up Golden Handcast Polly Courtney and what some of the images will be the old edition. Um, and it was a, that's a, a mistake, a learning that I, I definitely picked up along the way. Um, it was partly... It wasn't just complete ineptitude on my part that it was a bad cover. It was that um, we actually managed... I managed to sort of get quite a lot of press pre release the release date was set for january and i managed to generate lots of kind of media coverage in uh august the previous year uh, and i thought well i'm not going to be able to keep up this until january so i asked the i was working with a publishing house that, that was you know did a self publishing service so uh, i said can we pull the release date forward a long way like tomorrow and and they accelerated things as much as they could uh, so it came out about a month later but of course when you accelerate the process they just have to throw things together and and whereas i sent an image that kind of was this is the sort of this is the sort of um, concept I'm thinking they just basically used that image which was a handshake, me and my boyfriend at the time, <laughs> shaking hands on the cover and that was it, you would be so shocked, <laughs> it would make you feel ill uh, so yeah, terrible cover design but it sells tens of thousands of copies so I always think, damn, what if, what if it had a good cover <laughs> uh, so, so, um, so my experience with the traditional publisher was already kind of a little bit um, well, jarring, uh, the book came out it actually sold reasonably well um, not not as well um, as my first one, um, and more importantly for me, the reviews that I could see coming up on Amazon um, were all saying, you know, beware, this isn't what you think it is, or, or something along those lines. And some people liked it, and some people didn't. Maybe for that reason, maybe not. Um, and so I, I kind of thought, well, I think we got that wrong. And actually, there was a bit of a change of personnel in the team. And a year later, they kind of looked at the book and said, I think we got that wrong. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and, and, but then I was writing my next book for them. It was, um, I, I, was I was writing yeah, a, a book about the music industry. It was uh, about a young female... Uh, singer who signs with a big label and uh, starts to feel that her control has all been taken away um, and one of the editorial notes in the margin when that was in the editing process was, uh, is it really realistic that Zoe doesn't have any control over her cover artwork? <laughs> what? It's a mirror, but um, anyway, uh, so, so wrote that one and uh, at the time X Factor was really starting to get big and uh, so I think you can probably see what they've done there um, that it was, you know, it, yes, it's a book about the music industry. There's nothing to do with sort of TV talent shows or come kind of instant fame or anything like that. But it, um, it was called The Fame Factor, which is another thing that I sort of didn't have control over contractually and actually. Uh, and then with the third book, a similar thing happened uh, and it looked like this. Now, my issue um, throughout was twofold. One was the, the fact that I didn't think the covers were reflecting the contents, the style or the theme, yeah, the style really, um, of what was inside. And also that they're not, they're not consistent. So a reader would be looking at them thinking, 
well, that can't be the same Polly Courtney that wrote the other one. And uh, it was just very, you know, very inconsistent and confusing, sending out a confusing message. And from my perspective as an author who is writing lots of books and, and hopes to do so over my sort of writing career, I want to think about that whole career and what, you know, the brand Polly Courtney, if you want to call it that. So uh, it was distressing me for various reasons, which is why I ended up um, leaving HarperCollins and uh, reverting to self-publishing. Um, and I've only done one book since that point and it's been Feral Youth and it's been the best experience and I do feel like it was the best uh, move I've made um, reverting to self-publishing and taking on board a lot of the learnings particularly around cover design that I've picked up from both my earlier my, my earliest sort of bad experience and then the, the things that I saw along the way in um, the traditional publisher and, um, and I should say that, you know, it's definitely not like that in all publishing houses, as you can see. Um, but I definitely had a, I had a sort of probably the, the worst case example of, of how, A, a writer is kind of treated in that relationship, but B, uh, how the, the design choices and the process was not actually tailored to uh, long-term success and sales of, of Polly Courtney books. It was very much trend-led and not necessarily appropriate trends, uh, I thought. Um, so the process that I have been through for my last, for Feral Youth, um, has been to work with a designer directly, and that is a freelance designer who actually, she does a lot of uh, cover designs. I think she works for, does some for Penguin. Sinem Urkes is her name. And I found her by literally wandering around Waterstones, sort of picking out the cover designs that were sort of around the, the type of thing that I was thinking would be appropriate um, and uh, just turning the book over and seeing who designed it, and uh, and that was my sort of number one choice. She designed uh, Where Do You Go, Bernadette. Um, from, oh, yeah. I think was it a year ago? Yeah. yeah. Um, and and that was actually one of the books that I kind of thought, even even though you probably can't see the direct similarity, I kind of thought it's got to be bold and punchy and you know in your face. And also there are technical design constraints uh, because I was publishing it myself. I had to think about the kind of um, where people would see it and I do a lot of social media so actually if they're seeing something just as an icon or, or choosing it as an ebook, then it has to work small as well as big um, so all those things uh, were in my consideration and uh, pick my designer and you know when you meet up with someone and they really just get it even this was even before she'd read the book um, and I kind of knew she was going to come up with something good and um, or appropriate um, and so, you know, she read the book, which is a key thing. And I, I don't, I believe actually most of the team um, in the decision-making process, uh, in my imprint of HarperCollins, hadn't read the book, which is critical, really. You know, I, I, they, I mean, I've been told by people who have sat in that meeting, the Wednesday morning meeting, the cover design meeting, when, um, you know, people say, you know, I think this, I think that. Okay, right, well, that sounds like it'll work. What is it about music industry? Right, yeah. What about X Factor? You know, and, and that, for me, is not an ideal process. Um, so I, you know, I worked with her directly. She read the book. She she came up with about a dozen roughs, um, really rough concepts, and we sort of narrowed it down to a couple. Then we went off in a different direction just to try around, try something completely different. Um, and I was testing it along the way, not just uh, me and her, but I did. I had a trusted set of kind of readers, fans, family and friends, just just to give fresh eyes every now and then to, to give um, shape to it. And we quite quickly narrowed, narrowed it down to one concept and then honed it and honed it with, you know, trying different layouts and fonts and colours and things. And obviously she's the expert, so she, I wanted her to come up with the, really the concept and then uh, iterate, but, you know, it was totally in line with what I was thinking. So it was, in my mind, the ideal collaboration. And I believe that that is... Uh, the, the, the three things I believe... Um, a cover design 
uh, should be all about is um, collaboration between the right people who really get the book and get the vision for that book and future books for that author relevant to the book you know completely um, reflective of the contents of the book because you are boiling it down to one image and people don't have a lot of time to look at it um, and also consistent so consistency across multiple books if that's if that's appropriate so um, that's what I've learned I don't know if that's helpful at all <laughs> Okay, I'm coming back over here for my little bit. Um, so what do I, where do I hit? Um, okay, so I blog about um, book cover designs. Um, and uh, this is a cover by Chip Kidd, who uh, you may have heard of. He's you know, widely recognised to be one of the most brilliant American um, graphic designers of the current time, the current age. That's his cover for Haruki Murakami. That's his cover for Gish Jen. Uh, that's his cover for Jay McKinnery. He produces bespoke um, high-end covers for individual books that are relevant to the book in question. I mean, occasionally he does um, ones for the same author, and they might be a link, but generally they're totally standalone covers. There is, he's done various covers for Augustin Burroughs, but you wouldn't necessarily look at them and think they're all um, by the same designer. Um, this, on the other hand, is a book from Persephone Press, who are a small British um, publishing company. And uh, this is what their designer did for Susan Glaspell's 1915 novel Fidelity, whereas this is what they did for their collection of short stories um, that they produced as their 100th book. Um, and here are some more of their books. <laughs> <laughs> in my blog I'm just interested in all aspects of cover design but what I want, decided I wanted to talk about today was the experience was basically the anti-chip kid who I think is brilliant but I also think as a reader if you walked into a bookshop and every book in the bookshop was, had a, a unique relevant cover just for itself that was fighting it against every other book in the bookshop you'd never buy a book um, chip kid actually does uh, I suggest you Google him for his TED talk, um, which is uh, far far better. Don't Google it. You know, think don't think unkindly of me, but it's a fantastic sort of ten fifteen minute manifesto for the physical book and for the you know the, the what great cover design can bring to uh, to books. But I wanted to sort of look at the other direction, and so I'm going to show you some covers from various small independent publishing houses that are to a certain extent, the anti-chip kid. Um, so Persephone Press is run by one called uh, Nicola Bowman, um, and they publish um, usually out-of-print books by women writers from the 20th century. So they have a real niche. Uh, they publish a few men, um, and there's a few living writers, but usually they're uh, a bit like Virago for a while, was sort of the place that discovered uh, forgotten women writers, and Persephone Press are, are doing that as well, um, and they decided that they wanted to um, build a brand identity that was more important than the author identity because, unlike Polly, most of their authors were dead and were completely unknown. Whereas Polly is talking about a situation where she already had a certain amount of um, press 
you know, press profile and people knew who she worked, knew who she was. So this is a very, very different experience. Um, and it's an experience that's shared by this another publisher that are going to be my publishers, Galley Beggar Press. And so we're also we're immediately going back to that European look that uh, Isabel talked about at the beginning with what she called it elegantly discreet. And um, I don't actually know precisely why the, the publishers, um, Sam and Ellie, um, went for this look. I think they were inspired by sort of Faber um, poetry covers, which are a similar text only. So what I'm interested in is when you're an independent designer, a publisher, and you're setting up, you might decide to cover your books like this uh, out of an aesthetic purpose, or you might decide to cover your books like this out of a budgetary purpose, which is that you can't afford Chip Kid or even necessarily the, you know, what was the name of your design? Yes, you couldn't even, uh, you know, afford that person. But there is another uh, aspect of it, which is that they're a new publisher. This was their very first book a couple of years ago. Um, and they want to uh, build a brand identity for the publishing house. They don't actually care so much about the author uh, because they don't really know if the author's got a career yet. Uh, so that was their first book, Simon Goff's uh, memoir of his time, of his uh, great uncle, the poet Robert Graves, which is a great book. And this is their second book, Ema McBride's A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, which uh, won the Goldsmiths Prize last year and is shortlisted for the Folio Prize this year. So they've been very, very lucky. They're finding um, people that uh, you know, aren't getting... These are people that couldn't get publishing deals, just like you know, my agent sent my novel to all the, you know, the, the big uh, you know, London publishers and none of those bit just like Ema's book um, was on submission for nine years and didn't get picked up um, and here's their here's their third book um, Andrew Lovett's Everlasting Lane so as you can see they don't the only element of that which could be said to be relevant to the individual book is that pull quote where they, they pick out a, a quote from inside the book and, and slam that on the front um, these are entirely generic covers the individuality of the novel inside is entirely subsumed under the brand identity of the publisher. And in the words of Nicola Bowman, uh, she said, if you see a grey book, meaning the Persephone books, uh, you know it's a great read. So there's some more Persephone books. Um, But they are also, Persephone books, are very much a niche enterprise. So they, as well as uh, not having recognition for the author's name, uh, they... Uh, or another aspect of it is how they sell and that's something that um, you know doesn't necessarily well Penguin have one set of assumptions about how they're going to sell their books Polly will have another set of assumptions about how she sells her books but this publisher sell 80% of their books through mail order um, and only 10% of them through normal bookstores and another 10% through their own bookshop where obviously you, you walk past that bookshop, you're going to stop and look because it looks absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know, they're very beautiful things. They're high quality paper, and you know, there is a, although it's a very dull cover, it is a dust jacket. Um, and inside, there are beautiful end papers um, and bookmarks. And um, they build up. They've built up an incredibly loyal readership. Um, what? she knows is that she's never going to send these books out to fight against other titles in a bookshop. 
um, because in Waterstones it's just not going to stand out against other things. She knows that she is going to sell her books through other means. Um, she says our turnover has been very steady since the beginning. We don't have shareholders or a board, so we don't have to worry about what would happen if we got too big. So she's got a very, very different set of assumptions about what the book is doing to um, Polly or Isabel or even myself would have. Um, and all the fabrics are sourced to match the era that the book came out. Um, and the other thing that I would say, to make a very general point from that, is that although there, I think there's an incredibly good amount of amazing book design out there at the moment, but it isn't always matched by good um, product quality, production quality. So you're looking at stuff in bookshops and it can look beautiful, but when you get it home, the book itself doesn't feel as high quality as the design that's been put on it. And even you know, hardbacks from major publishers, I get them home and they fall apart. And the glue goes six months later. and I'm not happy about that at all. Um, so Persephone books don't have to worry about their author's sensibilities because they're mostly dead. Galley Beggar don't have to worry about their author's sensibilities because they are usually just grateful to be published. But that is something they're going to have to change, especially you know, if they, once they've had um, Ema's book and had a far bigger or as big a success as they possibly could have hoped for, they will find that that dilemma will um, change for them. Um, and this uh, classic front list dilemma um, was laid bare to me by talking to another publisher, um, Dennis Johnson, who is the co-director of the US indie publisher Melville House. And they have normal front lists. They produce uh, individual new original books, but they also produce this series of novellas um, called The Art of the Novella and that's what they did for Bartleby the Scrivener by Herman Melville that's what they did for The Awakening by Kate Chopin that's what they did for Jane Austen and there they all are together <laughs> so they again, they're a publisher they have a bookstore underneath their offices in, in Brooklyn and you walk past the door, walk past the window and you stop and go in because it's so amazing so amazing to look at but they know they're working to a different um, publishing model because of that. They, interestingly, when I, I spoke to Dennis, he said they tried to replicate this with contemporary novellas. They got huge amounts of press for this. Um, and they tried to do it with contemporary novellas where they switched it. So it's, uh, you know, it's white with a little bit of colour rather than colour with a little bit of white. And it did not sell at all. People weren't interested. So it only worked when it was classics. And the name, you know, Tolstoy, Tegenev, Jane Austen on the cover was um, going to do the work for you. This is another small British publisher that some of you may know called Pyrene Press. Um, and they are also a niche. They only publish novellas. They only publish novellas in translation. They publish three books a year. They work on a subscription model, which means that, again, they know that they're not sending their books out to fight in the marketplace against other books um, when people are browsing in Waterstones but just like um, Persephone have their shop and Melville House have their shop Pyrene Press do pop-up shops a lot and um, they again they spend a lot of time working on their readership and have salons and such like so the three books they publish a year are always linked by a theme and so from, that's their first three they've now been going for five years and these are all the books they've done so far. So these are the three that are coming out in 2014. And as you can see, they 
have done what I think is an incredibly clever thing, which is that they have retained the elements that brand it as a, as a Pyrene book. The circles, the blocks of colour, and the offset um, blocks beside the text, which um, the publisher, Mike Seerfogel, explained to me is supposed to show that it's about translation never quite getting it right, which went over my head. But, um, <laughs> but I, think it's a, I think it's a lovely point. But more importantly, I think it's a fantastic cover design. But it's not standing still. So there's three there, three there. It's three with illustrations last year. Uh, and these three here with, um, with bigger photographs. And I said to her on the phone, does that mean you're moving away? And, and the, the image, the individual element, which here was quite small, here has got much bigger. Is, it, is that dominating the publisher branch? She said, no, no, absolutely not. It's just, we're just trying something different every year. But the, they're always going to stay looking like... Um, Pyreme um, publications. I'm probably going over my time here. I'll just go quickly to um, the last example, which is And Other Stories, who are another small British publishing company. Been going since 2009. And as you can see, their designs again are very, very basic, very, very distinctive. And you might imagine that the authors might feel a little bit that their own personality and individuality has been, um, uh, you know, dominated by the by the publisher's branding but I think when you're setting up in, in this situation as a new publisher you have to brand yourself um, in order to find a place uh, in the marketplace and again they work a lot with their readers they don't have salons but they have foreign language they do a lot of stuff in translation and they have um, reading groups of people who read in foreign languages to suggest titles for them um, and again, I said to Stefan, now, which was it? Was it a money thing or was it a design thing? He said, it's both. You know, when you are starting out as a new publisher, you do not have the option of deciding um, how you're going to make your design decisions. Your design de or the parameters or the restraints of your design um, decisions are, are made for you, essentially. But five years into their design, into their, into their life, they're changing their design. And these are their designs... Uh, for their latest books and their 2014 books. So you can see that, um, for whatever reason, they've decided that they, they weren't going to keep um, that most basic design, but they're going to try and um, develop it while... I mean, is there a... I'm not even sure if there is a link between them, but I find that a very interesting decision that they've made after all those years. And Gally Beggar have, ju have had such success with the books that they've published that although they thought when they started all they were going to do was produce these beautiful black books with uh, French flaps, as they're called, their paperbacks, but, you know, nicely produced. That's all, that's all they're going to do, £11 for that and an e-book. They've had such success that they've basically been forced into thinking, OK, well, we'd better produce mass-market paperbacks as well for, you know, to retail at £8 or whatever, and those will go out into the bookshops and those will have individual covers um, and th they weren't expecting to face that at all, and that's a, a decision they're now having to face. Um, it doesn't work for all their books. They said that Simon Goff's book worked really well. It's a memoir about a modernist poet. Ema's book worked really well. It's a highly literary book. Um, the, the, their third one, it just didn't work, because it's a, it's a sort of novel about childhood, and there was nothing really... Although they thought it was a great book, there, was, there wasn't particularly anything... Um, in the book that matched this treatment. Um, so they're obviously hoping that when they have a second shot at it, they will um, be able to capitalise on that. But I'm very glad to say they're publishing my book, 
And I'm also very glad to say they've completely splashed out on my cover, which is going to be coming out in June. (laughs) (laughs) So um, that's pretty much where we're going to leave it. And and, and I thought this was all there was going to be, but they, they are now saying that there will eventually be a second cover and that there will be illustrators and designers involved and that scares me because I thought that's fine I know what I'm getting Uh, I know that I'm part of this publishing group and they're going to have to try and sell it in whatever way they can but I won't have to go through the process that that Polly did and now I'm going to so I'm very glad to have heard your, your experience there we go, thank you